This podcast is sponsored by Agroplante. Imagination, innovation, science in action. As a disclaimer, views expressed in interviews are solely those of the individuals and do not necessarily represent those of My Ag Life, JCS Marketing, and its employees. Welcome to My Ag Life, where we cover your world in agriculture. This podcast is powered by the top publications in the industry West Coast Nut, Progressive Crop Consultant, and Organic Farmer Magazine. Here is your host, Taylor Chalstrom. Hi, welcome to My Ag Life. Today we're talking with Paul Schreiner, research plant physiologist with USDA ARS, about what we know and don't know regarding foliar fertilization in the vineyard. Welcome to the show, Paul. Uh, thank you, Taylor. Um, I'm glad to be here. And uh, I, I have to say it was uh, a little surprising that you ended up finding this article I wrote for the Oregon Wine Research Institute uh, newsletter uh, and invited me to come on the show. So I'm, I'm happy to be here and happy to share my limited knowledge of foliar nutrition. <laughs> well, we're, we're glad to have you here. And that's kind of the part of what we're talking about. Um, kind of limited knowledge, Paul, researchers still really don't fully understand this relationship between these nutrients that growers can sometimes apply foliarly to vines and how they're actually eventually metabolized in the plant. Why why do we not have a full grasp of this up to this point? There's really um, two parts to this. <clears throat> and you, you brought up the idea of metabolism. Um, usually once a nutrient crosses the cuticle metabolism is not really the the roadblock let's say uh um the real roadblock is the cuticle um and so plant cuticles are very complex structures it's a little bit like our own skin right um of course very different you know we're humans plants are plants but i mean in, 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 an, in an analogy kind of way, it's like our skin, right? And our skin is really complex too. Uh, but the cuticle is basically a polyester uh, polymer, um, which is basically hydrophobic. It's kind of like, you know, rayon cloth or something like that, right? Like it's, uh, it's not very water soluble. Um, and of course, the main function of the cuticle is really to help plants not lose water to the environment, especially, you know, the, the leaves. Uh, and, and when we talk about the cuticle, mostly we're talking about the leaves. Um, and of course, when you're applying nutrients in the vineyard or in, in other ag crops, the target is mainly the leaves. Uh, but it's a very complex structure and it's hydrophobic to keep water from basically evaporating off the plant surface. Um, and it also, of course, performs other roles, like it helps with UV light interception so that you're not having UV light uh, cause mutations in DNA. And the cuticle also plays a role in basically keeping things out that are environmental contaminants, uh, like even dust, whatever, you know, uh, chemicals. Um, so when we talk about foliar transport of nutrients, the cuticle is the main barrier. Uh, the metabolism part typically is not so much of an issue because once you apply an ion to a plant, a, a fertilizer nutrient ion, um, 
once it crosses the cuticle, it becomes soluble in the cell wall and the cell wall is very porous and water soluble. Uh, and then it can enter the cells through transporters. Um, so really metabolism is not often the, the issue, it's more cuticular transport. Um, I should say, however, that, you know, uh, the idea about whether a nutrient is taken up and then where it goes within the plant, of course, is partly um, dictated by the ability of that nutrient to move within the plant in different vascular tissues. And typically what we're talking about there is phloem mobility. Um, phloem are the tubes inside the plant that move uh, many metabolites around, but it's separate from the xylem system. I don't know, you know, how many, how many of your listeners, you know, think about xylem versus phloem, but uh, typically like the xylem is coming, is bringing stuff up from the root system. And um, many ions typically get to leaves that way, right? Um, however, once metabol once nutrients are metabolized or incorporated into different molecules, uh, then they move around in the phloem. And even some of the ions themselves as just the ion, like calcium two plus or uh, nitrate minus you know, one can move in the phloem as well. Um, but flow and mobility is what kind of dictates where things move around in the plant. And certain nutrient ions are much more flow and mobile than others. Um, that's getting a little off topic of foliar nutrition in some ways, but it does relate because, for example, you know, if you apply uh, nitrogen as a foliar nutri nutrient to grapevines, some of that nitrogen gets incorporated into various nitrogen compounds, amino acids, et cetera, that then move in the phloem. And a lot of those can accumulate in the berry. And so uh, nitrogen is one really good example of something that's very phloem mobile. Uh, whereas calcium is, as an alternative is considered not to be phloem mobile. Uh, so most of the calcium will not move from where you applied it, for example, to the berry. Um, so that's just a little bit more detail about the whole movement within the plant. But the ultimate barrier is the cuticle as far as getting a foliar nutrient to go inside the plant. Certainly. And, and one thing I'm curious, Paul, I've, I've heard this before, is um, this, this concept of, of actually caring for the cuticle itself. You know, there's, there's maybe various factors in the environment that could damage the cuticle and, and um, you know, consequently um, decrease its ability to take up these foliar nutrients. Is that something that a grower or a manager could keep could keep in mind? Maybe this concept of cuticle care as well when they're thinking about uptake of foliar fertilizers. That's a very interesting question. Um, you know, the cuticle evolved, uh, you know, to serve these various functions. The primary one being you know, loss of water. Um, and can we really manipulate the cuticle that much um, and care for it? That's, in, in my mind, that's, it's not something that's, you can do very deliberately. Let's put it that way. Um, things that we do can affect the cuticle, of course. And like a big one would be surfactants that you include in foliar sprays. 
um, because that will alter the properties of the cuticle, um, particularly the waxes on the very outside. So, you know, I, I had said earlier that the cuticle, the base structure is this polymer of cutin, and there's also another one called cutan, but they're basically polyesters, but it's far more complicated because it also has waxes embedded within that matrix. But then there's also what we call the epicuticular waxes outside the cuticle waxes that are then deposited on the outer surface. Um, and those waxes have a huge impact on the function of that cuticle and how it interacts with the environment. And so if, if, you, pray, if you spray certain surfactants or even like, um, like a oily kind of compound, like let's say mineral oil, that, that can dissolve some of those waxes and change the properties of those waxes. Uh, and then that might or might not enhance uptake of a foliar nutrient. Um, so, you know, the, the whole foliar transport process through the cuticle is believed to occur through two main pathways. Okay, and I mean, this is really science geeky stuff, but the way we talk about them is the waxy pathway or the nonpolar pathway and then the polar pathway. And like the non-waxy, or I'm sorry, the waxy pathway is basically just dissolving right in the cuticle. So compounds that are organic in nature, like you know oils, benzene, fats, they can go right through the cuticle. Uh, they, you know, they basically are soluble in it, so they can cross it very easily. But ions and water, and, and of course, when we think about ions, ions actually have like a little ice cage of water surrounding them. Um, and they have to go through the aqueous pathway for the most part. Um, and this whole aqueous pathway is even more complicated because we haven't even seen it. Um, we know that it exists based on, you know, kind of biophysical studies that cuticular scientists have done, uh, but we don't actually know what it looks like and we can't really see it. But we know these pores exist, these aqueous pores, and that's how most mineral nutrients are gonna cross the cuticle. And so these aqueous pores are affected, probably the biggest thing that affects them is humidity. And so at high humidity, these aqueous pores are much more either open or more connected so that uh, things can move through them, including water and ions with a water cage around them. Um, so as far as care of the cuticle, it's that area is a little bit fuzzy to me, to be honest, like, and, and there are specific products marketed out there where, uh, it's believed you're actually enhancing the cuticle, right? There's, there's a couple of these products. I'm not going to name any, I, I'll get in trouble if I do that, but you know, like this idea that, um, we can really manipulate the cuticle is probably a little bit false. Um, the plant itself and the environment probably manipulates the cuticle far more than, than we can. However, if you spray particularly, you know, or uh, highly organic kind of solvent kind of materials, yeah, you can destroy the cuticle to some degree. And a lot of that is the waxes. And that, you know, this is partly what makes it so complicated to understand foliar nutrition because we have the wax issue on the outside, uh, which you know, affects how things are deposited on the plant surface. Um, and so that 
that whole issue plays a role in transport of foliar nutrients because, for example, uh, this idea of spray droplets and how they, how the spray drop itself sits on that surface, like if it if it sits as a like a perfect little raindrop, you know, it has a very small point of contact. But if you can spread that out by adding a surfactant, for example, or if conditions allow for that, including high humidity, which is one of these factors, um, if you spread that drop out, you basically just increase the surface area of contact, right? And so you can get greater transport. You were talking about, you know, that it might not be, you know, super efficient or or even possible for that matter to actually manipulate the cuticle from a grower perspective. But the those environmental factors are interesting. You talked about humidity. I mean, how much does something like that, an environmental factor, affect the way that these foliars are actually applied to the plant if we're thinking in the context of the cuticle? Um, you know, I'm sure with that, there's more optimal times maybe to apply a foliar than not. Absolutely. Um, and, and humidity is, is the big one uh, that affects that. Um, the humidity thing affects two major processes. One is it opens up these aqueous pores. Okay, we know that from, from studies of isolated cuticles. Um, but it also uh, affects this thing, and this is really science geeky, but this thing known as pod or the point of deliquescence. Uh, this seems like almost a fake term, but it's, it's a real term. Uh, and it basically has to do with the level of humidity in the air that will keep a nutrient in solution. Um, and all, all different salts and ions and, and whatever kind of compound you're applying have different levels of this. Um, the key factor though, is as you increase humidity, that go always goes up. And so increasing humidity is always going to enhance transport. And so that's why uh, in a practical way, it's better to apply foliar nutrients uh, when you have higher humidity. So early morning is better uh, than say late afternoon. Uh, however, there is the issue of dew, right? So like a lot of cases, you know, really early in the morning, you're also gonna have dew on the leaves and you probably want to wait until that dew is starting to dry uh, because, you know, you could just have a runoff basically and lose some of that nutrient that you're applying to the foliage. Well, thank you for that, Paul. We're, uh, we're going to be right back after a word from our sponsors. Agroplante is the leading manufacturer in specialty products. Agroplante formulates products that rise to the challenge of today's growing conditions. Saline and sodic soils reduce crop yield and cause significant crop losses. Agroplante developed Cation EX5 Plus with growers in mind to manage soil salinity. With multiple years of research, Cation EX5 Plus has proven to be an excellent source of calcium and an effective soil salinity manager. Run it through drip irrigation without any issues. Simplify your application method with innovative and efficient formulations. Alleviate salinity stress with Cat Ion EX5 Plus. Agroplante. Imagination, innovation, science in action. All right. Hi, we're back talking with Paul Schreiner, research plant physiologist with USDA ARS about what we know and don't know regarding foliar fertilization in the vineyard. Uh, Paul, 
you know, it's not just the cuticle that's uh, on the plant that can affect the way nutrients are applied foliarly. It's these other plant structures as well, such as stomates, trichomes, and specialized cells. You know, a lot to think about. Can you kind of explain a little bit about how these structures and the various properties um, may affect um, these applications as well? Yeah. Um, so there's there's been a, a debate for a long time about uh, the role of stomates in terms of nutrient transport through the foliage. And some, some early work was really interesting um, done by some, I mean, cuticle experts. I'm not a cuticle expert, but these guys were. And uh, they showed that even though stomates play a role, it's, it's not, the nutrient just doesn't go through the stomate, like, like flow through it, like, like a river or, you know, like a tiny little stream or whatever. Um, people have shown very clearly that like, you can't just have the stomates open and then apply a solution and have it run right into through the stomate. That doesn't happen. But what does happen is the stomate itself being open still allows tr greater transport but it's still a diffusion process. It's not running like within the liquid. It's just diffusing along the edges of the stomate. And a couple of studies have shown that if you manipulate plant stomates to be open, which we can do with certain uh, chemicals, and, and one in particular is this uh, substance that a, a fungal pathogen makes that makes stomates open up called fusicoxin. Um, and if you open up the stomates, you increase transport. Uh, it's really clear. Um, so we know that stomates probably do play a role. Um, and so that would kind of argue it might be better to apply, you know, at a time of day when the stomates are very wide open. Well, when are stomates open or, or when are they most open? Uh, typically, it's kind of in the mid morning, you know, and then the plant typically, especially vineyards, you know, we're we're, uh, we're not always giving vineyards the maximum amount of water, right? Because grapevines are super good at growth if you give them lots of water and, and you end up with a huge jungle. Uh, but what typically is happening is stomates are more open about 10 in the morning, for example. And then by midday or so, they start to close. Uh, and so probably at 10 in the morning, you could get better transport if you applied it at that time. Um, we know that the stomates definitely play a significant role, uh, but these other structures also play a role. And you brought up the, the idea of trichomes. So trichomes are the little hairs that leaves have. Uh, and sometimes uh, I, think, I think there's probably a lot going on there. I, I don't fully understand it, but just the base of the trichome sometimes accumulates things that you apply onto the leaf. And so sometimes people have shown that you get more transport transport right at the base of the these little hairs. Uh, and in some other studies, it's not, not in grape, I, I think this was a study in barley where they showed that specialized cells that sit right above the main veins, which I can't even remember the name of them now off the top of my head, but those specialized cells actually transported more. And we've only recently learned these things because people have uh, applied these new imaging tools 
like this x-ray they're basically x-ray spectroscopy kind of tools which i mean i my lab can't do that i mean this is really physics kind of stuff uh but people have shown that more transport occurs you know like at the base of the trichome in some cases or through these specialized cells um and so this is why we still don't know a lot about foliar transport i mean there's still things to learn um the cuticle is, yes, the primary barrier, but these newer studies are showing that maybe the cuticle is not even all that important uh, in some ways. I mean, transport through these other different specialized cell types might actually play a bigger role. So Certainly. it's and interesting. Yeah, and it, it sounds like you might have come to... Um this sort of idea in in some research trials that that your lab did that examined uh foliar nutrient efficacy in, in great brines paul I, i'm curious maybe what were some of the key findings did they relate to to kind of what you just said about some of this new research that's coming out you know what what actually worked and what didn't as far as applications go right so i've done some foliar trials um i've done quite a few with nitrogen I've done a phosphorus trial as well. That was that was done quite a few years ago. And then more recently, I've been working on both uh, potassium and magnesium. Um, so nitrogen first, and, and just very briefly, um, what we've been doing is applying urea as a form of nitrogen. And this is well known in the foliar literature to transport well across the cuticle. Uh, and that's because urea one is a very small molecule. Um, it's also a very potent source of N. It's 46% nitrogen, you know, so that's got it going for it as well. Um, but because it's a small molecule and it's uncharged, it crosses the cuticle very effectively. Uh, so if you apply foliar urea, you can get very good transport. <clears throat> and our studies where we've been doing this have been targeted at using that as a tool to raise must yan levels. And so, you know, it's not everyone agrees that Mustjan is, is so important, but many people think it's very important. Can, uh, you, can you enlighten anyone listening what that actually is? Yeah. And so Mustjan, basically it's must juice uh, yeast assimilable nitrogen. So it's, it's the nitrogen that the yeast need to function during fermentation. Uh, and so it's their, it's kind of the primary source of nitrogen that yeast are using for their metabolism when we make wine. Um, yams are probably not as important for things like table grapes or raisin grapes uh, because you're not making another product of, out of that. Uh, but in the wine grape world, yam is pretty important. Um, and so our our trials with nitrogen with urea and we're you know, we're, we were targeting trying to boost Yan. Um, the beauty of it is it works, it goes to the berry and, and we can increase Yan very effectively, but it doesn't cause the vine to grow bigger. Um, so it, as a tool for growers, it's a nice tool because if you already have a vigorous site, you already have big canopies, you don't really want to add nitrogen to that situation to the soil because then you'll get an even bigger canopy. You know, that's bad for wine quality because you get shading, you get disease, you get 
you know, less sunlight on the clusters, all these things we think of as being positive for wine quality. Um, and so urea is a very nice tool and it, it's very effective. This is like not anything new. Many people have shown this in other crops. It's, it's very effective. Um, we've had good success with magnesium uh, in a magnesium deficient vineyard here that we've been working on the last couple of years. Um, and I should say that uh, the, the trials that I'm doing right now are part of this larger nationwide project called the High Resolution Vineyard Nutrition Project, um, where you know there's a, a group of us working across the country on wine grape nutrition, trying to develop new tools, uh, look at uh, different ways of monitoring nutrition. Um, and so this project is, is funded by that, and it's a, it's a specialty crops research initiative project. Uh, so the work we've been doing lately on magnesium and potassium is part of that project. Um, magnesium for us has been effective, and, and we're just doing it in a very simple way. We're, we're applying Epsom salt, which is magnesium sulfate. Um, and in doing so, we've basically increased leaf magnesium and we've decreased the amount of magnesium deficiency symptoms that we have on leaves. Uh, so that's been effective. And our potassium trial, we're comparing both soil and foliar. And of course the foliar product is, is at a much lower dose uh, and it's not been very effective. Um, we have seen some minor boost in vine potassium status based on leaf and petiole tests and based on our uh, juice levels of that nutrient. Um, but it's not nearly as effective as soil applications. Um, but of course, we're applying like 100 times more to the soil than we are to the leaves. I mean, it's, you know, that, that trial was designed to, you know, address a potassium deficient vineyard. And so uh, given past experience uh, and also even history at the site, we knew we had to hit it with a bigger hammer to see an impact. Um, so it's not exactly a fair comparison, but I mean, that's always gonna be the case when you think about soil applied versus foliar applied. You're never gonna apply such a high dose to the foliage, you know, you just, it, it just doesn't work. Um, and of course, this also brings up the issue of macronutrients versus micronutrients. Um, and, you know, macronutrients, basically, this is nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, magnesium, calcium. Some might put sulfur in that group. Um, those are what we generally think of as the macronutrients. They're the ones needed in much greater quantity. Um, you're not going to be able to apply as much to the foliage as an effective management tool as micronutrients. So the micronutrients, which just to review, that's boron, zinc, copper, uh, I'm missing one, boron, zinc, oh, iron. Um, and let's see, yeah, well, you could throw molybdenum, molybdenum in there. Um, the micronutrients, uh, because they're needed in much lower quantity, it's it's easier to apply enough to the foliage to have an impact. I mean, it just makes sense. You need so much less. Um, but micronutrients typically also um, transport well across the cuticle based on what we know. And, and part of that is because 
they have a smaller hydrated radius of the ion itself. Uh, that's another factor that affects this idea of nutrient transport. Um, a lot of the micronutrients, the hydrated radius, that ice cage of water that is, is going along with that ion ends up being smaller than a macronutrient typically. Uh, so that's another reason that micronutrients are more effective as a foliar treatment than macronutrients. Um, so that's, you know, that's, yeah, that's kind of it in a nutshell. And I've not worked on any bolier, uh, sorry, foliar boron trials, but this is probably the most common nutrient that people apply to the foliage in vineyards across, across the world. Um, and it's very effective. And again, part, part of that is because boron itself, uh, in the form that we apply it is typically not charged and it's a small molecule. So it's similar to the urea story. It transports well because it's small and uncharged. Um, and it's very effective. However, it's, you know, it's an interesting case because we think we need a certain level of boron and growers are concerned about it because it affects fruit set. I mean, that's one of the big things it affects. Um, and so if you have low fruit set, you don't have fruit, right? I mean, and that's your product. So, you know, you don't want to have a limitation of fruit set, uh, but we really don't have a good handle on how much boron is actually needed in all the different grapes that we grow where it affects fruit set. And uh, I can give a good example from Western Oregon here where I work. There's a vineyard that we've worked in for years um, in various trials where they have never applied boron. They have the lowest boron in Oregon and they have no fruit set problems. And so, you know, most growers here just prophylactically apply boron just because that, you know, it's kind of like an insurance uh, approach, you know, like you don't want it to be limiting. So we'll apply it one. It's also cheap relatively uh, compared to other nutrients. So, you know, people just tend to apply it just to be safe. Right. Uh, but, you know, we still don't have a good handle on the amount of work it would take to figure that out across all the grape varieties we grow is so big, uh, it's, it's hard to address. Certainly. And, you know, like you said, there's, there's so many nutrients to think about these macros and these microbes. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of products on the market that, um, you know, contain these uh, for foliar specifically. But I mean, you also reference soil applied nutrients uh, at the end of the day, Paul, how does a grower actually, you know, decide if they're going to consider applying foliarly, if that's actually the right decision compared to a soil applied nutrient. And then on top of that, how do they pick amongst that? Uh, um, like you say in the article, myriad of products. Right. It's, it's not an easy situation, basically. Um, you know, as a plant physiologist and, and, and someone, I mean, my background is really roots and mycorrhizal fungi. That's primarily where I work. Uh, uh, and I think about plants, you know, as their, their roots are there for a reason. And, and, you know, one, they're taking up water. Of course, it also holds the plant in the ground, all that kind of stuff. But the main thing roots do is they help plants take up nutrients. And that's, 
that's the way we normally think about plants uh, taking up nutrition. Um, but that doesn't mean we have to manage that way, right? Uh, and so I think foliar, having foliar products just gives us other tools. And I think the urea case is the, is the clearest and most obvious example, you know? Uh, if you want to boost, especially fruit yan, we know we can do that with the foliar product effectively. And it has that advantage of not increasing growth. Now, nitrogen is the one that's, it's the big one that affects plant growth, especially in grapevines. Um, if you give plants a lot of extra phosphorus, if, you know, as long as they're not deficient, giving them extra P doesn't make them get massive canopies or giving them extra potassium doesn't necessarily make them get big canopies. It, you know, nitrogen tends to be the driver of growth. Uh, so that's why it's such a good tool. But when you're thinking about all the other nutrients that you're dealing with, you know, for me, I would say I would want to apply them to the soil as a general rule, um, just because that's the natural and normal kind of way plants function. Uh, but, you know, it's important just to keep in mind that you have this other option. And particularly with micronutrients, I think that's the place where foliar nutrition is something that should you should be thinking about more often, right? Um, just because it's, it's not always easy to be effective with soil applied micronutrients and, and hit the target right. Uh, you know, grapevines are very efficient I mean, compared to other plants, which I've worked on, um, they are rather amazing in some ways, how efficient they are at getting nutrients um, and getting their needs met, you know, and especially in the wine world, a certain amount of uh, stress or a certain amount of not being quite as healthy as you could be is, you know, probably giving us better wine quality. You know, that's, that's been kind of like the, I don't know. I don't know how I would say it. It's like, you know, it's kind of like the old wives tale or whatever of, of grape growing. You know, if you want to make good wine, you got to starve the vine kind of idea. That's been around for centuries. And I, I think there is some truth to that. Uh, but when, when you're growing other types of grapes, particularly let's say table grapes and or raisin grapes where, you know, you have different quality goals and different, even production goals. Um, you, you really don't want to tolerate being a little bit unhealthy. You know, it, it just may, it may affect your bottom line more significantly than in wine grape production. Um, so getting back to the question, it's, it's a complicated thing about the choices you make of soil versus foliar. And I think, uh, you have to think about it from a number of different perspectives, but probably the most important one is, first of all, do I have a problem that I need to correct? And um, right now, the, the tool we use to figure that out is we do nutrient tissue tests, right? Um, and for the most part, that means leaf and or petiole tissue tests at bloom or at verasion. Um, 
And that really needs to be, in my view, that's that's the tool you have to make to help make those decisions. Um, and it's a complicated world, you know, like uh, grape growers have a lot to deal with. Um, and different nutrients have different effects on things. And so, you know, if, if you're not getting a big canopy, uh, nitrogen is probably something you need to be thinking about. And uh, in weak areas of a vineyard, for example, you may want to try to apply more nitrogen. Um, and, and we know nitrogen is really key in, in, you know, in terms of developing that canopy, but a lot of the other nutrients, even potassium as a macro, or many of the micronutrients, uh, if the plant gets really large because it has lots of nitrogen, they can start to become deficient. So the way you think about managing your micronutrients is influenced by how you're managing nitrogen and the size of the canopies that we're growing. Um, and so that all has to be thought about. Um, so, you know, the, I guess I think about it as, as long as you have enough nitrogen to build a nice canopy, uh, you probably don't want to apply nitrogen to the soil. Uh, but then for the most part, wine grape growers have this added tool of doing foliar nitrogen. I don't think the other grape commodities, it's that important to think about foliar nitrogen uh, because I don't think it's probably affecting yields, you know, once you have a big enough canopy. Um, but other things do affect yields. And so that's where things like zinc and boron as micronutrients in particular are important. Uh, and having that tool as a foliar tool is a nice thing to have. Uh, and we, you know, we do know that those micronutrients work pretty effectively. Uh, you know, you, you know, using a foliar product for those nutrients is effective. Um, so it gives you that, I guess, added uh, tool in your pocket in case these things start showing up being deficient. I can add that to the foliage. You know, in, in the long run, I think most people want to add stuff to the soil and have an overall healthy plant. Um, but, you know, production things occur and we don't always fully understand how all these things play out. And so having that, having that in your toolbox, I think is, is an effective thing. You know, as far as choosing, particularly choosing foliar products, um, I think one thing that I would suggest, I know this is not going to be go over well with people marketing foliar products, but you know, as a grower, I would ask, where's the evidence that this product works? And can you give me evidence from independent trials that your product works? You know, not your trial that, that you're using as your marketing tool. You know, is there evidence from, you know, other independent researchers confirming that this product works? Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's too much to ask that as a grower uh, of these companies. Uh, that are marketing products. And, you know, it's not, not that I want to create a uh, negative attitude about that because of course some of these products work well and, and we know it, um, but particularly with some of the newer things that are coming out and, and there's a lot, you know, there's, there's a lot of new products all the time uh, and certain claims are made about those products. And a lot of times, you know, those claims have not really been proven 
with replicated field trials. Uh, you know, so I live in a world that's different than the growers. Uh, you know, my, my, my world requires replicated trials and proof that something works. Um, and really, it'd be nice if growers could have that information, but we can't always have that information because there's just too many products out there. No, I think that's a good point uh, to bring it up. I mean, especially, you know, if, if a grower is having to spend as much money as they are these days on fertilizers in general, I, I mean, I do think they would want to have some degree of evidence that uh, it actually can work uh, in their operation or at least in a operation, um, like you said, by by referencing independent research. Um, so that's a good point, Paul. And, and I appreciate everything else you said regarding uh, foliar fertilizers, you know, what we know, what we don't know. Clearly, um, as has been alluded to, it's a very complicated topic, um, but one that matters, um, especially these days. Um, so we really appreciate you being here and talking about that, Paul. Well, I, I'm happy to, happy to be here and I, I appreciate the opportunity, Taylor. Thank you. Of course. Thank you. This is Taylor Charlstrom for My Ag Life. Thank you for listening. Subscribe for updates, exclusive content, and more at myaglife.com.